You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. All right, what's going on, East Point Church? How are you guys? Good to be with you. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, please. Mark chapter 9. Uh, it is good, so good to be with you. Um, I had the, the, well, if you don't know me, my name is Sam. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And so uh, last week, got to take a break, uh, went down to the beach with my family and uh, got to see some of my, my parents, extended family, took my family. And so I'm just so grateful to serve at a church with such gifted ministers. Was Ronnie not just like faithful to the word? Man, just... And here's, here's the secret, right? Like, somebody was like, dude, when you're gone, it still happens, you know? And I'm like, here's the secret. Like, if you just open up your Bible, can't go wrong. You know what I'm saying? If we just preach the word, we can't go wrong. So super grateful for Pastor Ronnie, our family life pastor, Pastor Daniel, our music and creative pastor, and uh, for our elders just holding down the fort. So uh, we're going to continue in our series here. We're in Mark chapter 9, and then and before we dive in, I want to tell you about a story from April 2006. April 2006, I was living in Pennsylvania, attending high school, and I was preparing to run my first ever hurdle race. You guys know what it is to hurdle? Any track stars in here? I see. "Mm -hmm." Oh, yeah, right? See, the, the key about high school sports, the older I get, the better I was. Right? Oh, you should have seen me, man. The older I get, the better I was. And so, see, if you don't know, a sprint is where you run from point A to point B as fast as you can. You can sprint 100 meters, 200 meters, or 400 meters. They skip to 300. They're not playing around there, okay? So a sprint, you run as fast as you can from A to B. Well, at some point in ancient Greece, some dude was bored, and he was like, I have a better idea. What if we threw obstacles in the way of the sprint? And will make people run as fast as they can while jumping over things. So that's my race. I'm, I was typecasted, okay? My long legs. My coach said, you will be a hurdler. And so I'm nervous. You know, I'm preparing for my first hurdle race. And I'm doing the 300-meter hurdle race. See, they skipped the 300 for the sprint. They said, that's where we'll get them. Make them jump over hurdles. And so I'm there. My first ever hurdle race. And the gun goes off. Bang. And I just take off. Like, boom. I'm cruising. Probably faster than I should because it's 300 meters, and so I'm cruising, and bam, hitting those hurdles, bam, and something happens. Every time I get to the next hurdle, it seems to get taller. You know what I'm talking about? I don't, it, it's like magic. Every hurdle was taller than the one before it, and so I'm running, and I'm like, I'm like this is easy, bam, and before I know it, my legs are getting heavier, and, and magically, my body is starting to become heavier, and those hurdles, the first hurdle, I'm like this, and then this, and then this, and I get to the point of my race where there are three hurdles left. And I'm on the last straight, no more curves. I'm straight away toward the finish line. I can see it. And I, it was ugly. Let me just say that. Ugly. All right, U-G-L-Y. There was no alibi. It was ugly. And I had three hurdles left, and I jump over it, and just like, with all I got, ugh, barely cleared it. Two more. I'm like running. I jump over the second one. Ugh, I land, and now at this point, my legs feel like I'm like, a deer from Bambi. You know what I'm talking about? Like it was, I, I couldn't even walk. I, I can't, but I'm just 
just gritting it out. And there's just one more hurdle between me and the finish line. And I just run. I just, with all I got, and I go to jump over it. And I don't know if you know this, but your foot makes a very natural curve that naturally hooks objects. And I just, and I couldn't get over the hurdle. I couldn't get it high enough. And I hit it, my foot hooks, and I land. And it felt like the whole world was in slow motion. I, I, could, I could hardly, I could hardly make it to the finish line. And I couldn't even stand. And people are running by me. And I, literally, I felt like a deer, like, on its new legs. And so I do the only thing I knew how to do. I just dove. Let's be real. I fell. <laughs> I fell. With style. But I felt, and I just, and I get there, and I just slide. And we didn't have one of those nice all-weather tracks where you bounce right back up. We had the gravel, you know. And I just, <sighs> that was my first race. Have you ever fallen? Have you ever failed? Have you ever had a moment in life, maybe not in track, but in something other, some other area of life, and you just felt like, <sighs> you ate it. If you have, let me tell you what my coach told me, right? Because I got up off the track, and my knees weren't the only thing that were bruised. You know what I'm talking about? And so I get up there, I'm talking to my coach, and I'm like, man, I failed. I can't believe this. Like, I looked like, I, was, I must have been so, I was embarrassed. I must have looked so ridiculous. And I'll never forget, Coach Crosby, grizzly old vet, and he said, Sam, if you're going to fail, fail forward. That's what he said to me. If you're going to fail at least you failed forward. And so failing forward is asking yourself the question in the midst of your failures. It's asking the question, even as you have fallen, what can I learn from this? Do you fail forward? Do you ask yourself, how can I be better as a result of this failure? Friends, when you fail, that doesn't necessarily need to be a setback you can actually get up and be further forward than you were at the start because you learned something. You see, some of the most valuable nuggets of wisdom in your life will be mined from the quarries of your greatest mistakes. Some of the most valuable nuggets of wisdom will be mined from the quarries of your greatest mistakes. You fail forward. For the next few moments, I want to share with you a story about the disciples. And I'll just tell you straight up, they failed, okay? The disciples of Jesus Christ are on the scene and they fall. But here's why we're gonna look at the story. Because in this failure, there are precious nuggets of truth and wisdom for us to have. And the nuggets of truth that we find today are particularly, are especially valuable to a gospel community known as East Point Church. You see, we're here, friends, and it's no secret. We want to reach our world for Jesus. We should put it on a bumper sticker or something, right? Like, that's why we're here. We, we want to see the entire eastern shore saturated with the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to reach our world for Jesus. Is that you? Am I the only one? Come on, we want to reach our world for Jesus. I just read in a book, it said that... Um, Sociologists have said that every person, on average, will come into contact with 10,000 people over the course of their life. Isn't that crazy? 10,000 people. 
And here's what we say. We want to put a dent in that 10,000 people for Jesus. Amen? And so if that's us, there is a nugget of truth. There is a nugget of wisdom that we as a missional gospel community need. And we find it in this story. Friends, today we are going to learn, we are going to harvest a lesson from the disciples' mistake. And the lesson is that the mission depends on prayerful dependence. The mission absolutely 100% depends on prayerful dependence. So are you ready to begin? Are we ready to, <laughs> ready to see their mistakes? Better theirs than ours, right? So here we go. This is God's word for East Point Church, and we start in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. <clears throat> and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Let's pause our story right there. The first thing that we see, point number one, Jesus is looking for faith, but he finds none here. Jesus is looking for faith, but he finds none here. You see, we come down from the mountain and we see this commotion in the crowd, okay? We see the other nine disciples who were not with Jesus on the mountain. They have a crowd around them, okay? And maybe for a moment we go, oh, wow, they're doing what Jesus has done. Jesus often has a crowd around him and he's teaching them about the kingdom. But we get a little bit closer, and we, and we pull up to the circle and we look in and we see the disciples are not in the middle teaching. They're in the middle fighting. Okay? This amounts to like a, a fight in the schoolyard and there's a big circle and there's a spectacle. And at the center of this fight, we see the scribes are there. The theologians. These are the lawyers who often come from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus' authority. And they're in here again. But because Jesus is not there, we see that they're now doing it with his disciples. They're making a scene. The crowd is around them eating their popcorn, watching what amounts to a theological bar fight. And so Jesus says to them, what are you arguing about with them? What started this fight? What's, what's the cause of this commotion? And as he asks the question, somebody from the crowd, a father, speaks out. And we learn that this entire scene started with the request of a father on behalf of his son. It says here, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. There is a spirit that, that seizes him. It causes seizures. Fathers, is there anything worse than seeing your children in pain? Is there anything worse than seeing your kids suffer? And so here we learn from this father that his son is afflicted by powers of darkness. His son is afflicted by powers of darkness. But he's heard about this Jesus dude. 
he's heard about this guy that has been flexing his authority on the demons and on evil. And so he brings his son. Maybe, maybe this is the first time in a long time that he's even allowed himself to feel a glimmer of hope. And he comes, and he doesn't find Jesus because Jesus is on the mountain. But he sees his disciples, and so he asks them. He asks them. It's not bad, right? It's not a bad alternative. Jesus, we know, Jesus has been training these disciples to carry on the movement after his time on earth has come to, to a conclusion. He's trained them for this moment. Jesus is not just is creating a moment. He's building a movement. And so when we see the disciples asked to cast out the demon, we go, oh, good. Jesus is not there, but his people are. That should be good. As a matter of fact, we've seen them do this before. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent them out. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They've done this before. We got this. No big deal. We know what we're doing out here. We're disciples, right? Well, the father continues his story. He goes, yeah, I asked them, and they were not able gut punch. They couldn't do it. Jesus, I, I asked your followers, I asked the people that they, they were there talking about how they've done this before, but they couldn't help me. The disciples failed. Now I imagine there being some confusion, right? Like imagine you're one of those nine disciples and you're sitting here going, what happened? I've done this before. We We've done this in chapter 6. What's different now? What happened? Can God still use me as a sent one? Did Jesus make a mistake? Maybe I'm not cut out for this after all. This is like you guys having an opportunity for ministry, and you say, man, I've, I've shared the gospel before. I've taught classes. I've led missions trips. I've used my musical abilities. I've started new ministries, but, but this time... What happened? Why was it different? Why am I not effective like I used to be? Is it, can God still use me? And so they're sitting here confused. They are legitimately at, at a loss for what's happening before me. But if you look to the other side of the room, we see the scribes. You know what a punchable face is? You know what it means to have a punchable face? Have you ever heard that? It was invented right here in Mark chapter 9, right? Because the disciples are sitting here and they can't do what they were trying to do. And they look across and the scribes have their punchable face on it. That smug smirk. They go, mmm, mmm. And we learn in this moment that what started the whole fight is that the disciples could not pass up a delicious opportunity to once again confront and challenge the Jesus movement. So they sneer, they're smug. You see, Jesus is calling people to come in faith, but these people consistently come to fight. And so Jesus, he's frustrated by the whole scene. Look at his exasperation. He goes, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Look at these words, friends, and see if you can tell. What is it about this scene? What is it about this commotion that really frustrates Jesus? Do you see it? 
the reason why this is so frustrating, the reason why he's so exasperated is because this entire exchange reveals a lack of faith in God. He calls them faithless. That's the issue here. They don't believe. We're nine chapters in, and he's surrounded by people who don't believe. Who doesn't believe? Who who is he calling faithless? Is it the argumentative scribes? Is it the incapable disciples? Is it the crowd who's sitting there watching pay-per-view theology fights, eating their popcorn? I think he's probably talking about all of them. Notice, he doesn't single anyone out. He doesn't say disciples. He doesn't say scribes. He, he speaks more like an Old Testament prophet who is giving an indictment to the entire generation. He's making a, cult, a commentary on the culture at large. And he says, there is an overwhelming lack of faith in God that is characteristic among these people. He goes, I'm walking among this land who should know better, people who should know better, And all I see is an overwhelming lack of faith in God. And just like the prophets of the Old Testament, who as they were sent to people with blind eyes and hard hearts, Jesus speaks just like them. And he says, how long? How long am I to deal with those who talk a lot about God, but lack genuine faith in God? How long must I endure people who discuss and debate and philosophize about God? but whose hearts are far from me? How long must I be among those who don't recognize their God even as I stand right in the midst of them because their eyes are blinded by unbelief? You see, friends, Jesus is looking for faith, but he finds none here. He finds none. That's the diagnosis. That's what Jesus is dealing with in these people, okay? But... Like a good teacher, he doesn't simply give diagnoses. He offers treatments, okay? Jesus is not simply identifying what is in them. He's now going to move to treat what is in them. He's going to address the lack of faith, and he's going to correct it. And so he says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. Let me show you something. And the story continues. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pause there. The second thing we see in this story, a father brings his request, but Jesus focuses on his faith. Father comes with his request, but Jesus focuses on his faith. First thing we see, we learn the details of this boy's condition. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. They go over, they grab the boy from where he's being cared for, and they start to walk him back toward Jesus. And Mark tells us that when the Spirit saw Jesus, when the boy with this demonic spirit came into proximity to Jesus, it started acting out. 
he started thrashing and acting out because he's in proximity to Jesus. And this, just the, the extra details here, they show us clearly this is not just physical sickness, all right? It's not like, well, the Bible doesn't know what sickness was, so everything was a demon. No, no, we've seen things that were just sickness. It becomes very clear this is not just sickness. This is a boy who is in the grips of the kingdom of darkness. Remember what we've read so far. The kingdom of darkness is out here, and it is taking prisoners. And this man's son is another captive. And so we learn that an evil spirit, an agent of Satan, has taken residence in his life and has taken him prisoner. And friends, as you see this scene here, make no mistake, this is not the exception. This is the rule. This is how things are going down all day long on Satan's turf. God is seeking to bring light, but the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls is seeking to wreak havoc, death, and destruction. This is his play. We learn from John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is life in the kingdom of darkness. And so they bring the boy, and the demon acts out. He starts convulsing in the presence of Jesus. He starts getting agitated. Why? Because the demon knows what you and I already know by now, that this is God's king. And God's king has arrived on Satan's turf to take back ground from the kingdom of darkness. And so they bring the boy, he's here, and he's, and he's thrashing in the presence of God's conquering king. And then here's what I find interesting. Jesus doesn't immediately roll up his sleeves and heal the boy. He takes an extra minute here. He, he takes the long road and he asks a question. He goes, how long has this been happening to him? He asks the question and the father, we learn from the father that virtually this boy has been afflicted like this his whole life, basically since childhood. He says, there's more. Not only has this been going on forever, but the, the, the spirit, it seems that he's trying to destroy him because anytime he's near fire, he'll suddenly be convulsed and thrown into the fire. Anytime we're by water, it tries to drown him. Remember, steal, kill, and destroy. And so think about it. Why does Jesus pause and ask this question? Why does Jesus ask questions that he already knows the answers to. And so if we're not careful, we, we might be tempted to see Jesus like a doctor in his white coat with his clipboard going, tell me more about the symptoms. Because he's like trying to gain information to diagnosis. How long has this been happening? Since, oh, yep, you're right. This is a demon. You know, like Jesus knows those details. He's not asking information to make a diagnosis. He's asking these questions to draw out the Father. He's engaging the man. He is leading this man to talk to Jesus. Think about it. He could have gotten right to it. He could have rolled up his sleeves and just helped the boy immediately. But he doesn't. Because the value of this scene is not just the work that Jesus is going to do to the son. There's also the work that Jesus is going to do in the father. You see, he pauses the son and he asks a question to the father because he is taking this man on a journey. And it starts with a simple question filled with grace and compassion and empathy. He says, tell me more. 
He says, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Jesus knows these answers already. He already knows what the man has to say, but he leads him into a conversation. He draws him out. Where does it hurt? Where is the pain? Tell me more. You see, maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're still understanding who Jesus is. Let me tell you this. Jesus is not a conveyor belt of miracles. Jesus is not a genie who responds to our wishes. He is a personal Savior who is often more interested in what's happening in us than on the simple request that we bring for him to do for us. We come to Jesus hyper-focused on our request, but Jesus comes to us and he's hyper-focused on our hearts. And so he draws us out. He initiates conversation that leads us to personal awareness and insight and understanding. He comes to you, friend, and he says, where does it hurt? Tell me more about that. Where does it hurt? Tell me the pain. And though he knows those answers, he wants to lead you in a conversation with him. And so he says to the man, where does it hurt? And as the man talks, we start to learn about him. And he starts to learn about himself what Jesus already knew about him. This man lacks faith. What does he say to him? He says, if you can do anything. (laughs) If you can do anything. Now, we have seen some epic faith statements, have we not? Like, we have seen demonstrations of faith that would make, like, the ESPN top 10 faith statements of the day, right? Remember the dude who dropped through the roof? That's top 10, right? He's like, I believe so much so. I'm like, I'm already paralyzed. What more do I got to lose? Drop me through the roof, right? We've seen such great faith where where a woman crawls through the crowd and she knows that she could be uh, uh, imprisoned and ridiculed for her situation. And she goes, you know what? If I could just touch the hem of his garment, that's a top 10 faith statement, is it not? If I can just touch his clothing, I'll be good. We've seen guys that are like, dude, you don't even need to come with me. You just think it, just will it to be and it'll be done. We've seen the leper who says, if you will, I know I can be clean. Faith statements, right? And then we have this guy. Hey, uh, if you can maybe like do something, I'll take it. If you can. Not the most faith-filled statement, but it's telling, isn't it? Is this not an honest glimpse into what this man is feeling right now? Like we just, this is like it cracked open his chest and we can see into his heart. This is a guy who says, I don't really know who you are. I don't really know what you've got, but I've heard some stories. And so if you can do something, if you can throw me a bone of compassion, like I'll take what you got. We don't find expectant faith. You see, cautious wishing, reserved, what amounts to a half-hearted, you know, Wouldn't that be nice? Have you been there before? Have you ever been in your life in a situation and you see giants of the faith and you're like, yeah, what's the opposite of that, (laughs) right? I'm like a faithless dwarf right now. You know, it's just like you got the faith giants, not me, right? You just, this is real. This is where we are. This is where the man is. He's like, yo, if you can, that's what I got. If you can. And Jesus He clues into the lack of faith here. And look what he does. This is my favorite part of the whole text, right? He goes, if you can, 
Jesus quotes the man back to himself. (laughs) How many of you know sometimes you just need to hear yourself out loud? Some of you just need to hear, you just need to have somebody else repeat to you what you just said out loud. All right, so spouses, give you a strategy here. Just repeat what they just said. Parents, just repeat what your kids just said and be quiet. Right? Like, that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, you need to, like, hear what just came out of your mouth. Like, listen to yourself. Realize what your level of hope and belief have been reduced to. He's like, let me run that back for you. If you can. If you can. He's like, I'm not sure what you've heard about me. I'm not sure how you think this movement works. But if you can't, no, 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 that's not how things work in the kingdom. That's not how things work in this movement. Here's how things work in my movement, friend. All things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. This is a powerful verse, is it not? Man, if you're looking for a tattoo, that's a solid one. If you're looking for a scripture verse to write on your eye black, baseball players, there's a solid one. Right? Our, our culture knows this verse. Even if you've never grown up in church, you've probably heard this. Just got to believe, you know? We get t-shirts, we get back tats with wings that say, just believe. Or that's just me, I don't know. You'll never know because I preach facing forward, right? And my shirt's not off. This is getting weird. Okay. Um, and so just believe, right? And our culture has latched onto this. And they're like, you just, you just got to believe, man. If you just believe with all your power, you can dunk that basketball right now. Just believe, man. So, you know, I believe that my car will get 500,000 miles, even though I don't change the oil. I just believe that I'll pass this exam, even though I don't study. I just, I just believe that whatever I want will come true because of the power of belief. This is not what this means, okay? We've already seen this in Mark. Faith isn't the power of belief in whatever outcome you want. Faith is not the power of wishful thinking. Just believe, just keep the doubts out of your mind, and the power of belief will make whatever you wish for come true. It's just like magic. You just got to believe. What are you believing in? I believe in belief. No, biblical faith is this. Biblical faith is belief in God. Biblical faith is faith in his person. It's not positive thinking for a specific outcome. It's, the tr- it's trust that regardless of the outcome I hoped for, he still is who he said he is and he'll never let me down. Biblical belief is saying even if the outcome is not what I hoped for, I still believe and I still trust him and I lean on him with the weight of my life and I know that he will never let me down. There's no backup plan. I'm all in. That's belief. And so he's telling this man, he goes, here's how things work in the kingdom. This is a movement of people who believe in God. This is a movement of people who know without a shadow of a doubt that there are no limitations to the power and authority of the king whom we follow. This is a movement of people who believe that with God, nothing is impossible. In the kingdom, friends, we don't say, if you can. If you can. We come to our king in faith, knowing that when he speaks, the wind and the waves snap to attention. This is our king that when he speaks, eardrums burst into being, leprosy flees, eyes are made whole, demons flee, dead things rise. This is a movement where we believe that nothing makes God sweat. 
Nothing can stand in his way. With God, nothing is impossible. That's how things work in the kingdom. And now, before we're unnecessarily harsh on our dude here, okay? Before we're like, yeah, what a silly thought, if you believe. <laughs> like, hey, remember, this is a guy who has been experiencing a lifetime of pain. This is a guy who, as recent as 10 minutes ago with the disciples, had another glimmer of hope snuffed out by disappointment, right? This is a guy who knows, this is a guy who, who thinks that hope has died. But Jesus speaks, and he says all things are possible. Jesus says, you thought hope died a long time ago, but I'm telling you, hope is alive. And where the world has shown you pain, darkness, and death, my kingdom has come to give you life and light. And friends, good news, the king is here right now, he says. And faith is the key to my kingdom. And so this man hears these words, all things are possible, and something starts to percolate in his chest. Something Something explodes in his heart. And as Jesus speaks, this man believes. And he knows. There's just something that resonates inside of him. He knows that these words are not just a tired cliche. He knows that these words are not just hollow hope, empty platitudes that you can put on your coffee mug and it makes a nice stencil. No, no, he knows that what Jesus is offering up is real. And as Jesus speaks, something in him jumps at the promise of hope. And it says he cried out. I can just imagine him like blurting out and interrupting Jesus. All things are possible. Ah! Yes, I believe. Like he just, he cries out. He, he stands up. He raises his hand. He claps. He shouts, amen, whatever it is. But he goes, I believe. And then as he looks around, he's the only one standing. He takes a moment. He goes, er, Help my unbelief. I believe, yes, what you're saying, of course I believe that. But now that I think about it, help me. Help me. I do believe. I do believe. There's a spark. Jesus, what you're saying, I believe. But I got to be honest. Help my unbelief. Help me believe more. Would you address the flood of unbelief in my heart and help me to fan into flame the spark of faith? I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever said that prayer? You should. Because what happens is we, we have doubts and we hesitate and there's questions and there's splinters and we don't know how things work, but if this is this and this is this, then why this? And what we tend to do is we isolate ourselves from God until we figure out all of our questions. We move ourselves away from God until we can erase all of our doubts and then we feel like we can come back to God and do business. And what Jesus is showing us is one of the best prayers you can pray is, I believe, let me keep it real, God. I believe but I want to believe more. I believe, but Jesus, I need you to create in me faith. I need you to shape in me a believing heart. And at that moment, let me tell you, Jesus has this man right where he wants him, doesn't he? You see, we look at the demon and it's obvious to us, Jesus is advancing the kingdom by exercising demons. Great. But what might not be as obvious 
is that he's just as much advancing the kingdom on the soil of men's hearts. He cast out demons. We go, yep, the kingdom advanced. But look what's happening in this man's chest. He has yet again brought another person into the posture of believing faith. That's the miracle. There's the miracle, friends. Every time the Lord brings another person to even the, the, the tiniest little spark of belief, he's got us right where he wants us. I believe, amen? Help my unbelief, amen? Amen. Let's look at how he wraps up the story here. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Our third and final point is this, friends. Prayerful dependence must replace prayerless presumption. Prayerful dependence must replace prayerless presumption. The crowd is starting to form. Jesus doesn't want there to be a spectacle. And so he shows his authority. He identifies and addresses this demon with authority. And he says, you mute and deaf spirit. He doesn't wrestle. He doesn't fight. He doesn't get a vein bulging out of his forehead and out of the side of his neck as he's, you shall not pass, right? Like, but that's how it worked in Lord of the Rings. But not in the Bible. Friends, we see here he simply commands it. Probably doesn't even raise his voice. Come out and never enter him again. Power, authority. Hey, church, behold your God. Behold your king. We already know that Jesus can do all of these things without a word. He can do all of these things without even touching somebody. So whenever he does something, we ask ourselves, why did he do it this way? He's doing these miracles for our benefit. And so what do we stand to gain by Jesus doing it this way? By speaking authoritatively. By commanding it to leave. By commanding it and forbidding it to come back. Jesus is demonstrating his complete authority over the scariest, most intimidating forces that this man has ever known, the demonic. This isn't some battle between good and evil. This isn't a cosmic struggle between God's king and Satan. No, no, this is creator, created. This is the stuff of your nightmares. This is your God. And it's not even close. Friends, Jesus is more powerful than the scariest, most intimidating forces that this world can throw at you. Hear me now. Come on. In a world marked by fear, what scares you? What situation, what scenario would cause you to shake and tremble at your soul level? What's the worst case scenario that you imagine for your life? Is it a medical diagnosis? Is it the unimaginable loss of a loved one? Is it a financial collapse? Is it conflict? 
Is it the world's hunger? Is it World War III? What, whatever it is, Jesus is showing us here that he is more powerful than all of those things. And if he is for you, what can be against you? If he is with you, what can scare you? And so he speaks, and the demon says, well, excuse me, who do you think? No, he doesn't do that. What does he do? It came out. Jesus says, jump. And the demon doesn't even say how high. He knows how. He just jumps. The demon came out. A lifetime of pain, a lifetime of oppression, a lifetime of fear and distress, gone in a moment at the command of Jesus. And then just, why do we get this extra detail? Just because we can savor it. Jesus doesn't walk away and leave him on the floor. He picks him up. Once again, grabs him by the hand. We've seen he always, why is he grabbing these people by the hand? Because he was with you. And he grabs him by the hand. And while the demon threw him on the ground, while the demon threw him and cast him to the ground in pain, Jesus raises him up in peace. Behold your God. Behold your God. And so they're walking home. It's time for lunch, church. Time for lunch, walking home. And the disciples, they just could not help but contrast this powerful display of authority with their own inability. They just saw Jesus' power, like, on a different level. And they just can't help but wonder. They're still asking the question, what happened? What, what was different between chapter 6 and chapter 9? Why couldn't we do it? And so they ask Jesus, why could we not cast it out? What's different? And Jesus' response is the key to this entire passage. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Read between the lines. What is his implication here? Disciples, you rushed headfirst into this spiritual engagement with a prayerlessness that reveals your presumption. Disciples, you rushed into this opportunity not with a God-dependent faith, but with a prayerless self-dependence. You see, friends, they've done this before. They did this back in chapter 6, and somewhere along the line between chapter 6 and chapter 9, they got things mixed up, and they started to begin to assume that they can flex this kind of spiritual power and influence automatically. At some point between chapter 6 and chapter 9, they began to presume that the spiritual power, that the spiritual effectiveness was inherent in them. Okay, let me say it this way. Back in chapter 6, they were praying, Lord, help us. And by the time we've gotten to chapter 9, they've started saying, we got this. Chapter 6, remember when he sent them out? And they're like, what? Us? What do you mean? No, you're the healer. No, you're the preacher. You want me to do it? Lord, help us. And we see that's the perfect posture for the sent one. And at some point in chapter 9, they started puffing out their chest a little bit, you know. At some point by chapter 9, they started to feel good about themselves. They were feeling themselves, as they say, you know. They might have even read a few of their newspaper clippings, you know. Kept those in their wallets. Local disciples cast out demons. They were feeling good. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, we got this. will never work. 
the only prayer, the only way that it works. This kind is only coming out by a God-dependent, faith-filled prayer that says, Lord, help us. You see, they stopped believing in God and they started believing in themselves. And their lack of God-dependent faith is exposed by their lack of prayer. And so they failed. And so Jesus tells them that's what happened. And he says, write this down because I'm not going to be with you forever. Write this down because this is not the last opportunity that you're going to have to do ministry in my name. So write this down because when I'm gone, you must remember that the mission depends on prayerful dependence. The mission depends on prayerful dependence. And so this is our story, friends. We look at the Father and we remember. We look at people who need healing and we remember those who come to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus must do so in faith. But we look to the disciples and we also remember those who go for Jesus must also do so in faith. Friends, as sent ones, as a community that seeks to reach our community, as a group of people who want to reach our world, we must believe in God. We must be filled with a faith that overflows into prayerful dependence because the mission depends on prayerful dependence. May we never be a group of people, may we never be a church that, that exchanges, Lord, help us for, we got this. You want to reach the world? You want to see the gospel invade your extended family? You want to see the gospel invade your neighborhoods and your workplaces? You want to see people baptized where we can't even keep enough water in the tank because more and more people are putting their faith in Jesus? Do you want to see that? Then friends, don't forget our confidence, your confidence must not be in your communication skills. Your confidence must not be in your gifts. Your confidence cannot be in your organizational and administrative abilities. It's not in your spreadsheets. Our confidence is not our five-year plan. We believe in God more than we believe in ourselves. And the truest expression of that faith is that we spend just as much time praying as we do playing. Pray. The mission depends on prayerful dependence. And friends, I'm telling you this as your, as your pastor who loves you, the day that we start to believe that this is automatic, day that we start to believe that we got the formula, that we cracked a code, that, man, we could just create an algorithm for reaching the That's the day that we fall flat on our faces. That's the day that we're confronted by our own powerlessness because the mission depends on prayerful dependence. Let's pray. Father, there's no part of our hearts that look down on the disciples. Father, there's not one of us here who sneers at the disciples' failure because in their failure, we see our own. And so, Father, we just repent. We ask you to forgive us for our prayerlessness. We ask you to forgive us for our presumption. Father, forgive us for exchanging our God-dependence for self-dependence. Would you help us to believe? Create in our hearts, believing hearts, creating us a dependence that overflows into prayer. 
May prayer be as natural as breathing. As often as we inhale, may we exhale. God, I need you. God, I need you. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. So birth faith. Build your movement. Advance your kingdom. Glorify your son. And use us. Use us, Lord. May we not put too much stock in our strengths. And may we not despair over our weaknesses. Because we are all nothing. You alone are everything. Blessed be your name. For this day, forth, and forever. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.